This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. Welcome to the Out of the Blue podcast. I'm Nitin Seem, and I'm excited to discuss a very important clinical practice guideline from ATS, ERS, JRS, and ALAT on the diagnosis of idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. I'm joined in today's discussion by the first and last author of the guideline that was published in the September 1st, 2018 American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine, Drs. Ganesh Raghu and Kevin Wilson. Thank you both for joining me. I'd like to start by asking both of you to introduce yourselves to our listeners and advise them if you have any relevant conflicts of interest. First, Dr. Raghu. Hi, Nitin. Um, thank you very much for arranging this uh, podcast. Um, I'm Ganesh Raghu, a professor of medicine at the University of Washington here in Seattle. Also, the privileged chair of the International Committee of the Experts who developed this clinical practice guideline for diagnosis of idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. And Dr. Agu, uh, in terms of conflicts? Oh, yes. The, the conflict of interest uh, has, is Nitin as uh, noted in the uh, document. So I would refer to the document. And yes, I'm privileged uh, uh, to have uh, uh, designed clinical trials for idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. The details of the conflicts are noted in the uh, uh, publication. Thank you, Dr. Agu, and we have a link to that publication as well So, for, for our listeners. And Dr. Wilson, if you could introduce yourself and, and tell us if you have any relevant conflicts. Yeah, hi. Thanks for the invitation. Um, my name is Kevin Wilson. I'm the ATS Documents Editor as well as the ATS Chief of Documents and Patient Education. I'm Professor of Medicine at Boston University School of Medicine, and I served as the methodologist uh, for the diagnosis of IPF guidelines. I have no financial conflicts of interest. Okay. Well, thank you uh, for that. And let's go ahead and get started with uh, discussing the details of the guideline. And I am really excited to, to work through this with you. Um, and first, Dr. Raghu, I'd like to ask you to provide our, our listeners a bit of history uh, and relating to IPF and, and UIP-related documents. So most recently, ATS, ERS, JRS, and ALAT jointly developed a clinical practice guideline for diagnosis and management of IPF in 2011. Could you summarize the major recommendations related to diagnosis of IPF from these guidelines? All right, Nathan. Uh, the, the history actually dates back to the late 1990s. Uh, and in the year 2000, a panel of experts um, selected by the ATS and ERS provided a joint statement for the diagnosis and management of IPF. And this actually back then was based on pure consensus of opinions of these few selected members that I was a privileged member of it as well for the diagnosis and management of IPF. This was actually, Nitin, the very first time the committee agreed to uh, uh, come to a, a consensus to term the disease as idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, before which there was a fair amount of confusion, uh, not necessarily confusion, but uh, Different terminologies such as a cryptogenic fibrosing alveolitis was used in the United Kingdom. So the term idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis was agreed upon by this committee to be the right term. 
After that 2000, there's been abundant evidence accumulated, which prompted the development of the very first evidence-based guideline uh, by the experienced experts of multidisciplines and methodologists for the diagnosis and management of IPF. So we really introduced the uh, methodologists for evidence-based guidelines. And this was the huge undertaking because we addressed that all questions pertinent to the diagnosis and therapeutic intervention and became a mega document published in 2011. At that time, the definition and the diagnostic criteria for IPF was well sorted out. And we gave a pattern of usual interstitial pneumonia, which was the hallmark of the diagnosis of idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. We clarified the patterns both by CT and the histopathology. And it became clear that in 2011, the HRCT scan of the chest was considered as an essential component for the diagnosis of UIP pattern. We also provided some combination of patterns, uh, both by histopathology and radiology back in 2011. So 2011 guideline addressed all therapeutic inter interventions and provided the evidence-based recommendations, including the treatment regimen. But over the last several years since then, it became clear that the diagnosis that we had given as a criteria was uh, met with some practical issues. And so the 2018 guidelines, the present guidelines that we're going to talk about, really refined the criteria and uh, uh, provided uh, hopefully more important clinical relevance to the diagnostic pattern uh, for the diagnosis of IPF. Well, thank you for providing that historical context, uh, you know, going back almost 20 years now. Uh, and so I'd like to follow up on that with, with Dr. Wilson. Uh, as, as opposed to the 2011 guideline, this 2018 updated guideline focused on the diagnosis of IPF rather than management as well. What was the reason for this? I actually think Ganesh said it pretty well when he said it was a huge undertaking um, to address both diagnosis and treatment in the uh, 2011 uh, guidelines. I think they were actually published in 2012, but developed in 2011. Uh, the time, the effort required to develop that document was extensive. And to improve the, the timeliness, the ATS and the ERS elected to update diagnosis and treatment separately. It um, undertook the updating of the treatment back in 2015 and then subsequently updated diagnosis this year. It's standard to, to update treatment before diagnosis because the treatment estimates uh, that can be derived as part of the development of a treatment guideline can then be used in modeling the outcomes uh, that derive from various diagnostic testing when you update the diagnostic guideline. Oh, that's a really interesting point. Uh, and thank you for that. So, Dr. Ragu, um, in this current 2018 guideline, the panel took on eight questions related to the diagnosis of IPF. How did you come up with those eight questions? Interesting question, um, Nitin. Uh, the, 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 the chosen questions were literally based on the input provided by the panelists uh, as we developed the uh, guideline. The panelists, as well as from general pulmonologists in the community, and random to some panelists. These were felt to be the top most clinically relevant questions that the clinicians and patients are confronted in routine clinical practice in the setting 
of newly detected interstitial lung disease of unknown cause and suspected to have IPF. We narrowed down the top questions in order to be able to focus on the top relevant uh, questions and in order to be able to come and develop the guidelines in a time frame that was more practical. And that makes sense. Uh, uh, Dr. Wilson, I, I wanted to, to talk about uh, a little bit about the development. Uh, I think it's an understatement to say that having a multi-society endorsed clinical practice guideline developed is quite a process, taking many years and much effort by, by the group. Could you talk our listeners through this process? Give us a, a little inside baseball about this. Sure. So the way this begins is for a multi-society document like this, uh, uh, the chair would submit an application through the standard assembly and committee process to both the ATS and the ERS. And the application would consist of um, who they want to participate, uh, the reason for the project, how they're going to go about the project. Uh, if it's approved, as this one was, uh, then the societies collect conflict of interest disclosures and vet those conflicts of interest from all the, the participants. Once the panel has been, been composed, uh, then the work really begins. So all projects begin January 1st of the calendar year, and the subsequent months then are spent uh, developing the questions that uh, the panel wants to address as well as the outcomes uh, that are relevant to, to each question. That, that proceeds over several months, and then a face-to-face -face meeting is held at the ETS International Conference in, in May of the first year of the project. For our project, that first year meeting was spent approving the, um, the questions and the outcomes that had been discussed largely by on telephone and electronically, as well as um, basically planning the uh, approach that would be taken to developing the guideline. Following that face-to-face -face meeting, the work really begins. For the next several months, the methodology team then uh, synthesizes all the evidence that's necessary and relevant to answering the, the questions that were posed. In parallel with the methodology team, then the content experts with Ganesha's leadership, uh, they were developing um, summaries of the characteristics, radiologic characteristics, pathologic characteristics of IPF, as well as the diagnostic criteria. All that goes on over the summer and early fall. Then in another a second face-to-face -face meeting that was held at the ERS Congress, everybody comes together again. At the beginning of the meeting, uh, the descriptions, radiologic and pathologic descriptions, as well as the diagnostic criteria were discussed and approved. And then the methodology team uh, presented the evidence synthesis to the expert panels who discussed the evidence and made recommendations. Uh, following that meeting, uh, everybody went home, the document was written, uh, edited, reviewed, and finally submitted. I have to tell you, the usual time frame for a guideline like this, we aim to have it submitted within two years after the, the onset uh, of the project. Uh, many of them take longer. In this particular case, this group um, with Ganesha's leadership was terrific. We actually had the document submitted within 13 months of the start almost a year ahead of schedule. Well, that's, that's great to know. And I think, you know, it's such a tremendous, you know, tremendously intensive process and, uh, you know, the, the, the expertise in the disease itself and then the methodological expertise, I think that's quite impressive taking only 13 months. And, and the good news there is, you know, you're able to sort of get data 
in a in a tight period of time as opposed to something that dragged on for several years. That, that, that's remarkable. Uh, so Nitin, Nitin, can I intervene here a little bit? Of course, of course. Um, Kevin has been very modest and he gives the leadership uh, credibility to me. Yes, I was the privileged chair, but this was a this was a very intense collective effort by all the members of the committee, as well as uh, without the steering uh, stewardship uh, by Kevin Wilson as the project leader, we could not have accomplished this in such a timely manner. And we worked hard because the uh, essence of the diagnosis of IPF was very important for the community. So it was a very collective effort, but the credibility to be able to get this done in a very timely manner, I must admit that it was uh, really uh, goes to uh, Kevin Wilson. Well, it's a good sign that after all these months, you all still get along so well. So that must have been part of why <laughs> it worked out so well and quickly. Uh, so, so Kevin, I, I wanted to follow up uh, getting into some of the specifics of, of the, the questions. Your answers to the first two questions refer to motherhood statements, which was, uh, which I, I thought interesting, and I've, I've read more about that since then. But I, th I think our listeners would be interested in this. So, those first two questions relate to: Should patients with newly detected interstitial lung disease or ILD of, of unknown cause who are clinically suspected of having IPF, one undergo a detailed prompted history of medication use and environmental exposures to exclude potential causes of the ILD? and two, undergo serological testing to include connective tissue disorders as potential causes of the ILD. So can you talk us through the, the motherhood statement and, and the process of, of answering those first two questions? Uh, sure. So a motherhood statement is sometimes called a best practice statement. And what these are are statements or recommendations for which there's really no reasonable or viable alternative. So for example, if you made a recommendation to don't drop the baby, that would be a motherhood statement because a recommendation to drop the baby is not a reasonable it's not a reasonable alternative recommendation. Um, the The reason that it's important to make this distinction, though, is that according to the Institute of Medicine, now the National Academy of Medicine requirements for guidelines, every question is supposed to prompt the full systematic review of the evidence to inform the recommendation that answers that question. For motherhood statements, though, according to uh, ATS rules and most societies' rules, if you're going to make a motherhood statement, you don't need to do a full systematic review. It's just not considered a um, reasonable investment of time uh, because there's no viable alternative to, um, um, to research. So in the case of this particular guideline and the questions that you mentioned, the, the guideline committee discussed it extensively, and the feeling was that um, not taking a history for medication use or occupational exposure was not a reasonable alternative uh, for one of the questions. And serially, and and um, similarly, not doing serological testing for connective tissue disease was also considered to be not a reasonable alternative. Therefore, these were considered motherhood statements. Systematic reviews were not done, and they were just answered. Uh, the recommendations were f for what the... Um, uh, the committee considered really the only reasonable alternative. I would refer um, listeners to read through those sections, though, because whereas the recommendations themselves are pretty uh, obvious, there's a lot of very helpful information. So, for example, um, it's 
the, the committee felt it was obvious that serological testing for connective tissue disease is, should be done. A recommendation to do that may not be terribly helpful, but within the discussion, there's a lot of uh, discussion about which serological testings may be helpful and for what reasons. So I, I would encourage a little bit of time reading the, the text that follows those recommendations. So, so Kevin, um, uh, Nitin, I, this is Ganesh, I want to intervene and just for clarification for the readership, uh, for the listener, as well as for the readership. The motherhood statement is an, is an interesting terminology that has been uh, somewhat introduced here for the listeners and readers, although uh, the motherhood statement may be um, self-evident or explanatory to other people. Is it somewhat mandatory then? I mean, it is mandatory, as you said, it is important to take a history to eliminate the environmental exposure. So it must be mandatory. So what's the difference between mandatory and a motherhood statement? There, there really is no, no difference because what you're talking about, is, the questions are supposed to ask between two alternatives, like do you do alternative A or do you do alternative B? And so what we're saying with a motherhood statement is there's no alternative B. You should be doing A. Um, and so you're, you're, it's essentially telling the readers that that's what they should be doing. Yeah, so that, that, that is what I thought. So I just wanted to clarify this for the sake of readership and the listeners as well. Kevin, thank you. Yeah, no, I, I, I I think that's really helpful, and it's something again. As I was reading through it for the first time, uh, I didn't understand. So this this is actually very helpful, and and I, and I think uh, Kevin's point was was an excellent one. And we're going to go through for the the purpose of the podcast to talk through the questions and have some follow up. But there's an incredible amount of detail, and you have beautiful pictures and figures, and a lot of sort of the fine points of this that are in the actual guideline. You know, clearly a detailed HDP that includes review of medications that cause ILD and exposures that could cause hypersensitivity, hypersensitivity pneumonitis is important to find and remove offending agents. Um, and, and I think that a lot of that is, is detailed in, in, the, in the guideline itself. I did want to spend a moment to ask Dr. Raghu Ganesh to follow up on the topic of connective tissue disorders, because that does come up a fair amount in terms of timing of when do you call the rheumatologist and when, what is the standard panel of tests that you seeing the patient in pulmonary clinic, uh, for example, uh, should order. And so if, I, if you could sort of talk through some of the highlights of that, uh, Ganesh, I'd appreciate it. Okay, Nitin. Uh, as, as it has been discussed already in terms of the importance of the motherhood statements, the recommendations uh, to eliminate the connective tissue disease based on serology and rheumatology evaluation was based on the consensus of the panelists with the input from an expert advisor. So we were very particular in getting a very good experienced rheumatologist uh, who also sought input from other experienced rheumatologists familiar with interstitial lung disease associated with connective tissue disease and American Rheumatological Association. So we had a fair, a good input from the rheumatologist, and in this particular case, the advisor, uh, the spokesperson advisor was Virginia Steen, uh, who is a professor of medicine and rheumatology in Virginia at the D.C. area. Now, since IPF is a diagnosis of excluding connective tissue disease, the committee felt that the recommendation to exclude connective tissue disease was mandatory, and thus addressed it. The standard panel of serology 
testing, we felt that it was important to include ANA. And one of the things that we learned from the rheumatologist input was that the ANA has to be done by immunofluorescence. There are a couple of different ways to do the ANA testing. And so it was very important to, for the increasing the specificity and the sensitivity of the ANA panel, it has to be an immunofluorescence pattern. The panel also included a myositis panel and some non-specific inflammatory circulatory markers such as the sedimentation rate and the C-reactive protein, the high value of which would then clue into the possibility of the underlying connective tissue disease. A minority of the panelists recommended a more detailed serology testing that included muscle enzymes and uh, ANCA panel. And in fact, uh, uh, a minority of the panel suggested that we should be considering a, quote, ILD serology panel. But the vast majority was um, comfortable with uh, uh, using the ANA reflexive panel and the serology testing, as, as I alluded to. The other question you asked for, when do we need a direct evaluation by the rheumatologist? And this, we felt, was, should be deferred to the clinician based on the case-by-case case, uh, basis, depending upon what serology becomes positive and some or other uh, clinical features indicative of connective tissue disease. And so the referral direct evaluation by the rheumatologist was deferred to the clinician confronted with that setting. Well, well thank you for that. I, I think it's really important, your, your point about knowing your labs and knowing if you're getting an ANA in your individual institution by immunofluorescence or not. Uh, so I think that that's, that's very helpful. And it seems that that approach seems uh, to be a very common sense approach to, you know, get the serologies, uh, see what's elevated, and then defer that to the practicing pulmonologist of, uh, of when then to refer to the rheumatologist. I'd like to next ask uh, Ganesh to talk about uh, imaging, because that's a really important uh, sort of cut point, I think, in the in the decisions uh, for the for the uh, subsequent questions that the the guideline uh, attempted to to address. So first, uh, the guidelines recommend uh, the, the assumption that the guidelines assume that the patient has received a, a high resolution CT of the chest or HRCT, as we'll refer to it. So can you tell our listeners, Ganesh, what uh, the minimum criteria? Uh, that are appropriate for uh, for the HRCT to evaluate ILD. Yeah, Nitin, this is an extremely important uh, point uh, which I wanted to uh, surface in this guideline uh, because the HRCT uh, technique is generally taken for granted. So we went to the extreme of uh, getting a specific scanning technique recommendations, and we alert this in a table, the tableted manner, the table I would uh, request the uh, listener and the reader to look at the table three. And this includes a non-contrast volumetric acquisition and a reconstruction of a thin section CT images of uh, less or equal to 1.5 millimeters thickness and a contiguous or overlapping using a high spatial frequency algorithm and images obtained, obtained in both the supine full inspiration and expiration and a prone inspiration. We felt that these are very important technique in order to maximize the yield of the pattern of the images that 
the CT can depict and display. And so, so therefore, we alert the uh, radiologists and the technicians to be paying attention to this particular technique that uh, will enhance the image patterns to be able to recognize the specific uh, patterns uh, that we describe in this guideline. Well, that leads me directly to my next question uh, for you, Ganesh. Talking about the patterns, uh, first of all, again, I, I would refer to the listeners to the guideline. There, there are fantastic pictures of these four diagnostic categories, but I want to want to he- have you talk through them. So um, that the four diagnostic categories that incorporate the HRCT pattern are one, UIP pattern, two, probable UIP pattern, three, indeterminate pattern, for alternative diagnosis. I think it's, it is important to, to discuss these because they inform the clinician's probability of IPF and then are critical to decisions on next steps for further workup. So again, the, there, there are many images that I think are, are, are really well done in the guideline, but I was hoping you could talk through each of those four patterns and give our listeners a brief description of those patterns. Okay, Nitin. Um, again, uh, I encourage the listener and the readers to really look and get familiarized with the pattern that uh, we have now refined to to be to remind the listeners and the readers back in 2011 we had described the pattern radiologically as three patterns one was uip the other one was possible uip and the third one was inconsistent pattern and we described four histopathology pattern we realized that subsequent to the 2011 guidelines, the term possible usual interstitial pneumonia pattern that we then thought was an appropriate one became a little bit of a lot of a gray zone and confusion. And so we refined these diagnostic categories now as the four patterns. And one is the UIP pattern. The UIP pattern is essentially how we described back in 2011, which highlights and emphasize the distribution of the fibrotic pattern subplurally and in the lower lows predominant. And the distribution we recognize it can be heterogeneous, but honeycombing was an important feature of UIP with or without what we call traction bronchiectasis or a bronchioloectasis. So that was a UIP pattern. Now the probable UIP it's the same distribution, same reticulation, same subplural basal predominant, but without honeycombing. But we introduced the peripheral traction bronchiectasis or bronchioloectasis and also allowed mild ground glass changes. So we call this as a probable usual interstitial pneumonia pattern. Then the next one is what we thought the best fitting term is indeterminate for UIP pattern. In other words, the clinician, pulmonologist, or radiologist looking at this pattern could not really say whether it could be UIP if subjected to a histopathology. And so the indeterminate for UIP is still the distribution is subplural and basal, but the reticulation is very subtle. It may have ground glass changes. And some people would, might prefer the term early UIP for this pattern. But then there were no specific etiology that can be determined. It is truly an indeterminate for UIP. 
So this, in retrospect, may be what we were referring to possible UIP back in 2011. But the term indeterminate for UIP seems a much more fitting terminology. Lastly, we recognize that if there are some specific features in the distribution or in the patterns, such as if there are a lot of cysts or if there's marked mosaic attenuation or if there are lots of nodules or if there are predominant ground glass changes or if this distribution is peribronchovascular, the details of these are given in that particular table for an alternate diagnosis of any one of these would sway away the diagnosis of UIP and therefore it could be considered as alternate diagnosis for UIP. So I hope that giving these four patterns radiographically that the clinician and the radiologist clinician confronted with the CT pattern will be able to interpret this properly. To the point, I'll tell you what I've, I've done in my own center, that we have very good chest radiologist and a referral center. So when I brought this up to the chest radiologist, they feel that for their trainees, meaning fellows and residents in rotation, they ought to memorize this to the point that they are going to have a laminated version of this in front of their reports that they will be reminded each time to be able to uh, interpret it in an accurate manner. Well, when, just to follow up that, so you mean the, the laminated version of the, the figures from the, the guideline? As well as the uh, description of what the patterns are. Dr. Agu and Wilson, thank you for providing us the, those details about past IPF guidelines, the process of developing this one, as well as discussing the role of H&P, laboratory workup, and chest imaging as they relate to the diagnosis of IPF. I'm going to ask you to come back for a second podcast to continue discussing this clinical practice guideline, and now specifically the role of invasive procedures in the diagnosis of IPF. Please subscribe to the Out of the Blue podcast in iTunes or your favorite podcast platform. And please come back next week to listen to part two. I'm Nathan Seam for the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine.